Hi, I'm Elin Miller, and this is Everyday Reconciliation. This podcast takes a hands-on look at reconciliation, what it means, why it's important, and what everyday actions non-Indigenous people like me can take as part of this national project. As you can hear, I'm a settler. I grew up in Linköping, Sweden, and now live in Ottawa, on the traditional unceded territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. In today's episode, we're getting tactical. With me today are Crystal Fraser and Sarah Komarniski. Crystal is Gwitschagwitschin, living on Treaty 6 and homeland of the Métis Nation. She's an assistant professor of history at the University of Alberta, where her PhD research focused on the history of student experiences at Indian residential schools in the Inuvik region between 1959 and 1996. Sarah is a settler scholar based in Sombakay, known as Yellowknife in English. She's a research chair, health and community at Aurora College, adjunct professor of anthropology at the University of Alberta, and the mother of two children. Crystal and Sarah are the authors of 150 Acts of Reconciliation, a list of actions, small and large, intended to advance reconciliation and encourage people to think about indigenous settler relationships in new ways. They are going to tell us more about it. A quick note for our listeners. This conversation was recorded just after the discovery of the remains of 215 children at the former residential school in Kamloops. You will hear us talk about it, though not about the subsequent discoveries of unmarked burial sites which hadn't been confirmed at the time of the recording. Green Gwizi, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you, it's great to be here. Studies show that a majority of Canadians support reconciliation, but many feel powerless to do anything. And if they do, they're afraid that they will do or say something wrong. Your initiative, 150 Acts of Reconciliation, is a list of 150 acts that Canadians can take to contribute to reconciliation. Before we dive into some of the actions that you suggest, let's just take a step back. You launched 150 Acts of Reconciliation in 2017, when many Canadians were busy celebrating Canada's 150th birthday or the 150 years of Confederation. Why was this initiative needed at the time? Speaking back to um, a comment that you opened with that, you know, people are afraid of making mistakes. Um, I would argue that mistakes are critical to the process that in this uh, effort of, you know, being self-critical, learning new things, getting outside of your comfort zone, um, that if you aren't making mistakes, you aren't putting yourself out there. So I definitely encourage everyone to do that. But four years ago, when it was Canada 150, that was uh, a hard time for some Indigenous folks like myself, you know, seeing Ottawa spend half a billion dollars on a birthday party, um, in Ottawa for one day when, you know, half a billion dollars could buy a lot of things like access to clean drinking water in every Indigenous community in Canada. It could have brought, uh, you know, students' education on reserve up to par with every other um, child who attends school in this country. And so it was a hard thing to swallow. And 
just the mass marketing that was being done around Canada 150, it was, it was everywhere and, and it made me quite upset. Um, and so I thought, you know, well, what's really a constructive way to be dealing with these feelings on an everyday basis? Because um, the whole year was Canada 150. It wasn't necessarily going anywhere. And that's when I started jotting things down about what settler folks and my friends and colleagues and and family could be doing in order to advance reconciliation in, in this country and that's where i looped sarah in as a partnership and the project just basically took off from there <laughs> and i can't i can't remember i don't even remember now crystal i think you probably texted me and we're like hey i have an idea are you in and i was like yes because you know, you, you, you usually have great ideas and, and I'm, I'm happy to participate. And I think, um, both of us, we, we met, um, we were both working at the University of Alberta. Well, Crystal was a student there in history and I was also in the history department and we were both in our ways, um, studying like different arms of the colonial apparatus and all the harm that was done. And, and it, um, you know, she proposed this idea, um, for Canada 150 to kind of, you know, cut the, cut the like overwhelming celebratory mood at the time. And I think, you know, we were joking that there was like Canada 150 ketchup and band-aids of like the mood was just so intensely nationalistic, even though, um, you know, this was, this was after you know, only two years after the release of the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And there had not been much movement on that. And so we were, um, we were joining like, I guess, a, a, um, a wave of discontent with, with those 150th anniversary, um, of confederation celebrations. And, um, yeah. So you decided to take action, um, instead of, you know, um, in sort of a way of addressing that, those troubling feelings, maybe, uh, feeling offended and. Yeah. And, and it, and it looked like, you know, basically we got together, uh, we both had young daughters at the time. And so we got together at each other's houses or, and collaborated on a Google doc and, and Crystal, as she said, she started initially, um, jotting some ideas down. So we started with those and then just brainstormed, like what kinds of things could people do? And we really wanted to keep it on, um, on action. So beyond, like it couldn't be, or we didn't want it to be a whole list of things that, um, you know, someone would, would be asked to read. I mean, surely that's in there. And I think all Canadians, there's, there's, um, there's things that all Canadians should read, but, but we tried to cue it to action. So things that people should do, um, do with others, do with their family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's why I find this list so, um, so great that it's so action oriented and it's really things that most Canadians can do. Um, and most of the actions that you suggest are things that anyone would agree with and enjoy doing, such as reading books by Indigenous writers or visiting a powwow. How does this help reconciliation? How does reading a book by an Indigenous writer help reconciliation? Yeah, I will say that there are various definitions of reconciliation in this country and uh, it's my belief that particularly with um, the news out of Kamloops about the 215 children uh, 13 days ago now, we we are launched into uh, 
maybe step two of reconciliation in, in this country or a new era of reconciliation. But back to the list, um, I think that something like reading a book by an Indigenous author, you know, you're supporting that author financially, whether you're asking your library to purchase that copy or whether you order it yourself. You're also learning about Indigenous perspectives um, from the perspective of uh obviously the person who wrote it who is Indigenous, um, maybe that book will be circulated among your friends, maybe it is something that you could share with a child or a neighbour and so reconciliation is really about relationships, it is about uh, supporting each other and, and trying to learn uh, where each of us come from in a better way. Mm -hmm. So support and learn and understand better. One of the things about this list that um, that I wanted to point to is that, you know, we, we have also the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And later, you know, we're developed the calls to justice from the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls um, inquiry. But um, but those are often targeted at the level of government or, um, you know, institutions uh, institutions that kind of thing and and these are things that we really wanted to highlight that this is ongoing work for individuals to do every day um and and you know settler canadians um especially we're the ones who are responsible for educating ourselves um on on these topics and and sharing that out with others and i think um you know reading books by indigenous authors is a good one because like that's that's something that really literally anyone can do but can like shift their mindset and as crystal said like have ripple effects out from from the individual so we're, we're in this together it's all it's all our responsibility and we can all contribute you included some actions that I think that non-Indigenous Canadians may find a bit provocative or they may be a little uncomfortable reading um, reading it. So Act number 19, for example, uh, about consider your position as a settler Canadian. And you both, Sarah, you call yourself a settler and, and Crystal, you use the word. So what does that mean and what does that imply to um, to call someone a settler Canadian? Well, you know, it's interesting because this word settler um, has really come up in a lot of conversations. Uh, sometimes folks are uncomfortable with it, but, you know, it's really a word that the first peoples who, who came here and their families, they use that word to describe themselves. Um, and so this word settler was not something that indigenous people invented. Um, it wasn't something that, you know, was controversial. It was literally, you know, the settlers who arrived in this country called themselves settlers. And in order to identify as a settler Canadian or to be a settler, you're acknowledging that, yes, I am not Indigenous. I am a guest on this land, even though my history here might span many generations. Um, and I mean, certainly, Sarah, I don't think that we use that concept at all to be provocative or uh, to be controversial. We mostly had accepted it as a term that was probably in my perspective, the most accurate and honestly, probably the most respectful. Yeah, I agree. And I, I don't actually know what else I would call myself. I mean, my family background, uh, my family were Ukrainian settlers, but like, I'm not Ukrainian. So in order to like, 
understand myself um, in relationship to this work, it's really the term that makes the most sense. Um, so that's like, that's not provocative. We did have items like that we didn't include on the list because we didn't want to be too provocative. And I can't really remember what those are, but I just remember like, we were like, oh, we can't put that in kind of thing. I think potentially more provocative and harder to do for people could be asking like to really reflect on how your livelihood, your life, like all of the things that you have as a settler, like how it's built on a foundation of Indigenous dispossession of of colonization and all of that, that, um, again, like, uh, be, I, maybe because of the, the work that we do, I, I am not sure I, I find it provocative, but I think for someone, um, you know, maybe coming to this list, just, just finding out about all of this and I don't know where they would have been living, but let's say, let's say they're just finding out they may find that really challenging to do. And I think, um, that's part of this list too, is like, it includes things that literally anyone can start with, but the hope is that the learning, like the, by putting yourself into these um, actions, by reaching out, by educating yourself, by engaging with Indigenous peoples locally um, and learning how to live live in a good way in the places where you are that you know that that learning never stops it's, it's kind of a lifetime process and we've talked before about how um, this list is for others as much as it is ourselves and and even myself and I'm, I'm speaking to you from um, Chief Dragi's territory uh, Yellow Nice Dene territory um, in the Northwest Territories and um, and and moving here is like starting the list all over again. A part of the list is making yourself uncomfortable and and not everyone is going to going to be ready to do that at the same time um and so i'm coming to you from edmonton treaty 6 homeland of the metis nation and in particular you know here we are grappling with the uh, oil industry and the tar sands. And so let's say a particular person who is maybe connected to that industry who wants to better understand reconciliation, you know, looks at the list and decides to think about how they're connected to land. And all of a sudden, you know, it, it comes to light and they really discover that many of the agreements in Treaty 6 have, have not been upheld and realizing how you perhaps perpetuate those inequities through a job that you go to every single day, that can be really something challenging both professionally and, and personally. And so when you ask yourself these hard questions, they often ripple throughout various areas of your life. It's not just contained to, you know, your job or your work or your family. It's kind of a rethinking of your identity, really. And we totally respect that, you know, not everyone is going to be ready for this right now, but particularly um, given uh, the deaths uncovered in Kamloops, given these new and fresh calls for an apology by the Catholic Church. Um, you know, if if you aren't willing to do this work now and, and you're interested in reconciliation, honestly, you might kind of be left behind in the conversation. 
Yeah, it's interesting how some of these acts uh, really make you think. And um, there was Act Number Six to One, for example, about um, finding out if an indigenous people was forced to move out of your area before you move there. And it made me think about my house and my my garden. And you know, should I should I give up my house then, or move into the garage, or vice versa? But um, I understand it's just it's just really important to think about these issues, to wrap your mind around them and to understand in order to better relate and also in order to understand um, all the, the challenges that indigenous people face today. Um, another action that you suggested is to buy indigenous artwork. And I have purchased some prints and jewelry myself and I love them. I love wearing my beaded earrings. But sometimes I worry that I overdo it. When I wear my mucklucks and beaded earrings together, for example, and maybe even put on my seal skin bracelet. How do you feel, Crystal, when you see um, a settler or a white person wearing traditional indigenous items? Thank you for supporting Indigenous artists. That makes me very happy to hear. And I guess from my perspective, you know, when when I see someone wearing these items, it's not my first tendency to pass judgments. Um, I've been very open about uh, my identity as, as a Gwich'ya Gwich'in woman. However, I'm also white passing. And so a lot of times you can't visibly tell if, if someone is Indigenous or not. And as long as those items aren't being um, appropriated in a certain way, um, as long as they're respectful, for instance, you know, you mentioned you're wearing um, a sealskin bracelet, that's beautiful. Now, if we were at a uh, a concert and you're, you were wearing a headdress, um, I would definitely judge you on that, because <laughs> that is a totally <laughs> inappropriate thing to do. And so, um, I would honestly encourage you to wear these items. I I don't think there is is overdoing it. And I mean, especially your status as a settler Canadian, um, these are really opportunities for somebody to have a conversation with you, you know, like, oh, where did you get that? That's really beautiful. And and that's when you can take a moment to position yourself and, and let them know, you know, um, who you are and your thoughts around this whole process. Um, and then also, you know, tell them who the artist is, give, give that name drop. And so maybe they'll go and look for them online and find an item for themselves. So it doesn't make me guilty of cultural appropriation. Um, I don't think so. I mean, there's lots of big conversations around cultural appropriation. Now, if you were creating these items yourself and quote unquote borrowing designs from Indigenous artists, that would be a separate conversation. But by supporting Indigenous artists in a respectful way and wearing these items, that is not appropriation. Okay, even mixing um, items from different groups, Matisse, Inuit, First Nations artwork. No, I mean, Sarah, maybe you have something to say about this, but I, I think that it really reflects the diversity of artwork in, in this country. I agree with Crystal, and I think um, there's, there's good resources out there, too, for learning about cultural appropriation. And I think, um, 
you know, wearing um, and showing appreciation for somebody's art. Um, art is is okay. I I often wear um, beautiful earrings made here in the Northwest Territories and and get comments on those, and I'm happy to share who I who I purchased them from. Um, and so I think it's 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 all about that line about who's benefiting from you know the the creation of this product and and is it a, like you know. Is it a, a sacred item, like a, a, a really um, ceremonial item? Like those should those should never be worn, um, except for in ceremony, is, is my understanding. But um, but items made for for sale, um, as I understand it, are for are for sharing and for enjoyment um, for everyone. I know the reactions to the 150 acts have been mostly positive or or very positive, but have you also received some backlash? Well, this is interesting because, um, you know, often Crystal's been the spoke, the, the media spokesperson for the project. Um, when the project launched, um, we were lucky to have some, some good media coverage of the list and, and of our work. And, um, for me as, as the, the settler, uh, co-author of the list, I've gotten really positive feedback on it, um, exclusively positive feedback. You know, I, I haven't gotten any, um, any negative comments myself to my email or anything like that. Um, however, I know it hasn't been that way for Crystal and I'm not sure. Um, yeah, this is in part why Indigenous folks don't really feel safe on certain social media platforms or um, even, you know, talking on TV and stuff because, from my perspective, the topic of reconciliation is fairly, fairly happy. You know, it's kind of like, let's be friends, let's better understand each other. Um, but certainly after the media interviews on this project uh, almost four years ago, um, they were nasty emails, you know, like a death threat related to this project. I've had those threats from other projects as well. Um, you know, inappropriate photo bombing over Facebook, um, mean tweets on Twitter. And you basically just learn how to look after yourself, learn, you know, your boundaries and cultivate your networks. And, you know, for sure, this has happened again in the past week because I've been in the media a number of times. Um, and it just kind of goes to show you that, you know, there's still a lot of discontent in this country, um, you know, regarding the death of the children. Somebody asked me, what, what do you want? Compensation? And, and I thought, like, that's kind of a hostile way to start a conversation first. But second, like, like, no, I want to be able to speak my language fluently with, without spending hours and hours every week learning. I want to be able to, um, you know, educate my daughter in our traditional moon time menstrual customs. Like I want all of this stuff to come naturally to me. I don't want to have to go out and, and, uh, seek that information and knowledge because a part of it has been lost because of colonialism. <laughs> and so these spaces are, are not always friendly, not always welcoming. And, you know, I have to say like, I'm a historian now I'm um, I work at a university and uh, 
my expectation as a student, which was totally naive, is that, you know, academics are are smart people, which, I mean, they are not super smarter than the rest of the world, but they hold these positions. And, and I, I had the assumption that, um, that universities did better. And it's, it took me not a long time to learn that these conversations at a university level, at an institutional level, are just as hard, if not harder, than with the general public. I'm sorry to hear this. Sarah, you're not Indigenous, while Crystal is. Did you two discuss this, your different backgrounds, when you started working together on this initiative? Well, it's a it's a big part of why, you know, I, I, I'm assuming, and I've heard Crystal talk about this before, but, you know, why she invited me in on this project. And I think it was about, um, you know, working together to come up with this list, um, both from our own, um, our own backgrounds, our own, um, our own histories, our own positionalities to propose like a, a list of things that, that people should do. And I think, um, especially for myself, um, you know, I see a, a huge role to, to be a, like, um, to like, to like share an example of like how I work with these things too. And often when we're um, asked to present uh, on this work or, or we're, we're, we share on it, um, I really try to show and share like what I'm going through in, in my own process because it's, it's like, I guess if I can do it, others, others could too, maybe. Um, and, and I mean, I, I'm talking about things like, you know, bringing, bringing my daughter in. And I, I have to say that I find it awkward to have a conversation about something like residential schools with my, with my kid, who's, who's four years old. Um, but I do it anyway, even though I know I, I feel like I'm fumbling and I don't know what to say and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I, and it, like, you know, I, I get better or we keep having the conversation because if, if I don't do that, it's total, total privilege to like leave it out of my family life. Right. Um, and so I try as much as possible to share that kind of, I mean, I, I, I feel uncomfortable with that. I can like reflect on why I would feel uncomfortable, like about that and find that it's a, it's a place of privilege that that's kind of allowing me to feel that way and push through that to, to have really hard conversations with my kid about um, children her own age who were sent away to school and, and, and were never able to see their families again. Um, you know, same, same thing with, um, with talking through, you know, what it means to really think about your own family history um, in a context of colonialism as a settler. And instead of like going for the, the glorified kind of Ukrainian settler narrative where we came, we farmed, we prospered, um, unsettling that a lot more and looking for like, how did that happen? Like, how did how did Ukrainians and Indigenous peoples become so separate? Where did the racism come from um, that that many people in small town Alberta have towards Indigenous peoples? Like, um, what is what has been my own family's role in all of this? Um, and and you know, getting to that actually is probably a life's work. But um, for my part as a settler, I, I that's that's the the example I try to set and, and surely comes into this list in the sense of, you know, I'm talking to my people about what I think you should do too. So the last question, what are the top three things that you would like to see non-Indigenous Canadians do 
to contribute to reconciliation? That is a really hard and great question. Um, I mean, first of all, I would like to see every Canadian take up 150 acts of reconciliation and, you know, start start to check things off. And as you get going on these things, um, you'll realize that maybe you've already started, that actually this is not an enormous, scary thing, that maybe you've already uh, accomplished some of the acts. If you're starting brand new, that's okay. Don't worry. We have a checklist for you. We continue to engage with a hashtag on social media, um, 150X. And so reach out. There are other people who are uh, going through this alongside you. Second, I would like folks to start writing letters to our elected officials, to your MP, to your MLA, to your uh, city council and mayor, to your church leader, whoever. What are you doing to implement the 94 calls to action? You know, scholars Eva Jewell and Ian Mosby in 2019, they calculated how many of the 94 calls to action we've completed. And it was um, eight. And Mr. Uh, Jagmeet Singh in the news last week said that we are now up to 12, that is still falling way, way short of where we need to be. Um, third, and this is timely in relation to Kamloops, is that one of the acts on the 150 acts says, you know, find out if there was a residential school in your area. And so I would really encourage everyone to find the closest residential school to visit that former site, see how it's commemorated or not, and and learn learn its history. Thank you. That's great advice. And Sarah? Yeah, it's funny and not super surprising. There's some overlap with Crystal. Obviously, we did we did work together on this, but I guess my main thing is um, educate yourself. And I think the 150 acts of reconciliation can really help you um, help help settlers to help non-indigenous people to to figure out how to do that um, to start educating yourself and and surely like I would start with with the TRC report at the very least the executive summary and the calls to action and memoirs by residential school survivors um, would would be great for everyone to to get a start with um, given the, the present moment after the discovery of the graves at the Kamloops school. Um, again, the second thing is hold your elected officials to account. Like Crystal, I, I'd love to see people writing letters, um, encouraging uh, elected officials at all levels of government to um, to implement, finally, um, all of the calls to action from the TRC to work on a good action plan um, for the missing and murdered, for justice for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and, and, and you know, other um, calls to action that are already out there ready, waiting to be implemented. So hold those elected officials to account um, and share what you're learning. So I, I, we've said before um, in presentations that, you know, as you're working through this and, uh, you know, share what you're learning with your family, your friends, your community, your coworkers, take those opportunities. Like, yeah, you know, you might, you, you won't feel like an expert. And, um, and like I described fumbling through explaining to my daughter what's going on and, and why it matters, but 
do it anyway, share it out and, um, and have the conversation. Um, and I guess the last thing, and it all kind of fits in and I'm kind of paraphrasing crystal here, um, in all of that, like now that, you know, like now that you've learned and now that we all know, um, about these children, the children, for example, found in Kamloops, what will you do about it? And that's kind of the question that, um, continues to motivate me, um, in, in doing this 150 acts work. It's interesting that you say that, Sarah, because it reminds me of, of that phrase that knowledge is power. And that is so true. But what's the point if you aren't going to do anything about it? And so, yes, it's, it's good to know these things. Um, but when Indigenous peoples in this country, what is now called Canada, uh, still face so many in- inequities across the span in, in healthcare, in housing, in education, in economy. Um, now that we know all of these things, what are we going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. I think our listeners should start with visiting activehistory.ca and read the full list of the 150 acts of reconciliation. Um, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Massey, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your interest. Masicho. Thank you again to Kristen Fraser and Sarah Komaniski for joining us to talk about this project. 150 Acts is an amazing resource for all of us sharing the land here in Canada. Go to activehistory.ca, read the 150 Acts of Reconciliation and pick one that you want to realize and share what you're learning. If you read a book by an Indigenous author that you like, recommend it to a friend. If you learn a few words in an Indigenous language, use them. And when it's someone's birthday, consider buying the gift from an Indigenous company or artist. I just ordered a pair of earrings for a friend from a young, talented Cree beater, 14-year-old Cameron, who happens to be a friend of my daughter. And talk to your kids about residential schools and why children die there. It can be difficult, I know, but there are lots of age-appropriate resources available online. On Canada Day this year, I selected a couple of short documentaries available for free on the National Film Board website and watched them with my kids. Hearing directly from survivors in those films gave us something to reflect on together and it made it it easier for me to find the right words. And most of all, share the 150 acts, share them with your friends, with neighbors, with colleagues, and on social media. And that's all for this episode. Tune in next time when we'll be talking to Michael McLeod, Member of Parliament for the Northwest Territories, about being Indigenous on Parliament Hill. Everyday Reconciliation is brought to you by Rio Tinto in Canada 2020. The show is edited by Aaron Reynolds and produced by me, Elin Miller, along with Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jara. The artwork was designed by Sylvie Levier and the music was produced by Marius Miller. <laughs>